Today's scripture reading is Colossians 3:18 through 21. <clears throat> wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in, the, in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Blessed be the word of the Lord. And that's right. Blessed be the word of the Lord. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn over to that passage if you haven't turned there already. Colossians 3, 18 to 21. I want to welcome our friends in Columbus. I'm glad that you're joining us today. I invite you also to take your Bibles and turn there. And uh, let's ask the Lord to uh, bless us as we look at this really important passage today. Father, thank you that your word is inerrant and that it is clear, it is compelling, it is relevant. Thank you for its authority. Thank you that through the history of the church you have raised up people whose passion was the text and then they ordered their lives in light of that text. So Lord, make us men and women of the book today. Make us children of the book, people who understand your word and are willing to obey it, follow it, do what it says, and take our human reasoning and our thinking, and while not checking it at the door, letting our human reasoning being subservient to the authority of the scriptures. So Lord, we're asking today for clarity for husbands, for children, for wives, for slaves, for masters, as we'll see in two weeks, that you could help us to know how we ought to live in the midst of a culture that so desperately needs to see the way that Jesus really works. Lord, we are tired of blown-up marriages. We're weary of homes that name the name of Christ and children who've walked away. We are, Lord, very aware that these roles and positions have been abused, have been neglected, have been poorly treated, bad models have been given and wrong things said. And so we're asking for clarity today to... Bring a sense of crisp, clear focus in the midst of all of the things that we could think about these, these matters. So, Lord, help us today to know your word and to obey it. Lord, I pray you'd use my words to land on, on ready soil. And whatever is of you, make it stick. Whatever, Lord, is just my own little ideas, then let it never be remembered. So, Jesus, we submit to you. I bend my knee to you today asking for you to use your word powerfully by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust that you know that Christianity, by definition, was meant to be very practical. It's meant to be something that you believe, truths about who God is, what sin is, what Jesus is, that are meant to translate into the real world in which you live. In point of fact, Jesus, because of who he is, is rather invasive. <laughs> Jesus, remember I've said over and over, you don't make him Lord, he is Lord. You don't make him core, he is core. The reality is, is that we need to submit to his lordship and his supremacy in our lives. And the beautiful thing that he does is when Jesus comes in, he transforms your heart and then he takes over your marriage. He takes over your relationship with your kids. He takes over how you conduct yourself at work. He, he helps you understand how you should treat employees. Jesus is that invasive. Here's why. Because he's that supreme. That's why. He, he's that um, able to invade our lives because of his worth and of his value. We're in a section in the book of Colossians called Jesus-Centered Living. Uh, the banners on the wall tell us that chapter 3, verse 5 through 4, all the way to the 18, 18th verse, is a section on what it means for us to live with Christ, not just intellectually at the core or intellectually at the center, but how to make that really work and really live. And we're going to continue in this theme all the way until November 30th of this year, where we'll wrap up our study in this wonderful book. Our section that we're in right now identifies the invasiveness of Jesus and the way in which he can transform marriage and work and family. In fact, notice the following verses in Colossians 3. And notice the Jesus-centeredness of every single role. Wives, he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting. Notice, in the Lord. And then he says, husbands, love your wives. If you go on to Ephesians 5.25, you would see that he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
And then he says to children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. So both wives, husbands, and children are commanded to do things, and they're to do them because of the ground upon which they're built, which is namely Jesus. And then he just goes on and says, slaves, obey your earthly masters, fearing the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you get it? Lord, Lord, Lord. Slaves, you do all of this because of who Jesus is. And then masters, treat yourself, your, your slaves justly, knowing that you have a master that's in heaven. So you get this sense from each and every one of these roles that undergirding them and supporting them and motivating them is the question of what does Jesus have to do with these roles? Or how does Jesus transform these roles, making them new and meaningful and powerful? You see, the reality is that Jesus is, as I said earlier, rather invasive. His His supremacy and his authority demands that family, work, and ministry are all now infected by the reality of who Jesus is. And this fits with a verse we saw earlier in our study in Colossians 3.17, where Paul said, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what happens here is that we find that everything in life is now connected to him. Whether I'm a husband, or whether you're a wife, or whether you're a child, whether you're an employee or employer, all of life centers and is connected to the person of Jesus. Meaning that he transforms all of those roles and all of those relationships, and there's things that Christ wants to come out of those roles and relationships that reflect the beauty of who he is. Now there's two key things that are important for us to know as we look into this study and, and, and look at the broader brush of what it means for husbands, wives, children, slaves, and masters to submit themselves to the authority of Christ. The first is an issue of consistency. You see, the text is clear. It is that Jesus, by his lordship, takes issue with every single role and tells each role in each person how they ought to conduct themselves. So the consistent thing throughout the roles is the fact that Jesus transforms everything. So the consistent thing among all the roles between husbands, wives, children, slaves, and masters is the centrality of Jesus. That is the single thing that is consistent amongst all of them. So obedience to the Lordship of Christ is not conditioned upon your role or function. Rather, Jesus transforms the role. That's what he does. And that's the consistent thread through all of these roles and through our text. The second thing you need to see is that there is a beautiful uniqueness. While the common theme of the Lordship of Christ is clear, the way that we express that Lordship of Christ is unique to our God-given roles. So children are told to honor the Lordship of Christ differently than their parents are to honor the Lordship of Christ. Wives are told to honor Christ in a different way that husbands are told to honor Christ. The slaves are told to honor Christ differently than masters are told. So the key is understanding that God's design is not a uniformity of roles, but rather a uniformity of relationship to Christ. Let me say that again. His design is not a uniformity of roles, but rather a uniformity of relationship to Jesus. Some people would like to take this text and say there's no roles. Everyone has the same role. There's no distinction. In order to do that, in my view, they have to do enormous gymnastics around the text, and they miss the point. It is that Paul is saying that the uniqueness here is that each individual person is bound together in their individual roles by this common belief, this common charge, and this this common motivation of honoring and magnifying Christ. The result is a unique expression in each role, husbands, wives, children, slaves, and masters, a unique Jesus-centeredness that flows from each of those God-given roles. If you think about this, it's incredibly beautiful because it acknowledges that there's unique roles in life. It acknowledges that God has designed culture and life to be in a particular fashion, but he puts them all underneath the banner of the Lordship of Christ. So while wives, husbands, children, slaves, and masters have different roles, we are all united in the centrality of Jesus. And in case that makes you nervous because you're like, well, how do we do this? He gave us the spirit of the living God within us to help us know how to express the Lordship of Christ. Now, why is this important? It's really important for two reasons. Again, this is overview. It's important because first, some people resist their role. They resist the role that God has given them thinking that they could obey or honor honor Jesus more if their circumstances were changed. 
For instance, a husband who says, I don't want to be the head of the home, I don't want to lead, and therefore I could obey better if I didn't have this responsibility and this guilt trip put upon me. Or a wife who says, I could honor Christ more if I could just be in that position. Or children who think I could just honor Jesus more if I didn't have my parents telling me what to do all of the time. I one time had a student that I was recruiting into college, and he didn't want to come to a Christian college because he got tired of people telling him what to do, and he got tired of his parents telling him what to do. And I said, okay, so what are you going to do? So I'm going to go join the military. (laughs) I thought, have fun with that, pal. Because they don't tell you what to do, right? But we get this mentality that I could just be, I could be free, free. And the reality is I've got as many rules on my life now as what I've ever had. And that's the way God designs it. You see, some think that their role hinders complete obedience. Employees who think I could really honor Christ if I could just be the boss or they know how they, they think they know how to do the jo- boss's job better than he or she can. Or employers who try and disconnect the lordship of Christ from daily business operations. I don't, I don't want to be in charge. and I don't want to have to figure out how to honor Christ with this role. And the fact is, we often don't get to choose our roles. The fact is, is that Jesus transforms those roles. So don't resist thinking that you could then obey more by having a different role. Secondly, some people think that a distinction of roles implicitly means a difference of value. So they equate, a different role means I have less value. They mistakenly equate value with function. And we need to really help our children and ourselves understand that value is not tied to function. Value is tied to image. As an image bearer of Christ, value is tied to being an heir of the grace of life, as we'll see in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we have to understand that value is implicit within who we are in light of who Christ is, that our roles have very little to do, if anything, with real value. So the result would be you might have a husband who thinks that because he has a role that's different than his wife, that gives him more value and therefore can be a dictator. Or a wife on the reverse who sees submission as marital slavery. Or a child who resists obedience because, after all, she's a person too. Or an employee who views herself as less valuable than her boss because she has to report to her. Or a boss who treats her employees with disdain because she thinks because she's got the title, now she can treat people in a way that she just wants to. What happens is that Jesus takes each of these roles... And the beautiful thing that he does is he gives them new value, new meaning, and new purpose. But he does something even more. He takes each of these roles, and in each thing that he commands, Jesus models it. Don't you love the fact that our Savior never commands something? He does it also model. And Jesus models submission. He models Christ-like leadership. He models obedience. He models doing things as unto the Lord. He models understanding that he has to give an account to the glory of the Father. So everything that Jesus does, he models in his life. And so what we find is not only these commands in terms of how we're to function in these roles, the specific designations of how we are to function, but Jesus gloriously gives us a model that we're supposed to follow. So, The big picture is this invasive Jesus who connects all of these things together and provides in the midst of life this unity and diversity, this consistency and uniqueness related specifically to family, to husbands, wives, children, and then also slaves and masters. Now, you're at verses 18 to 21. You'll notice that three different groups are addressed. Wives, men, husbands, and fathers, and children. Now this morning, I'm going to look at only two of them. We're going to look at children and fathers, or children and men today. Next week will be Vision Sunday, a message as to where we're going as a church. And then the next week after that, I'm going to take up the subject of women, slaves, and masters. You might say, well, why are you taking it out of order? Well, the answer is, is I'm going to take it from easiest to hardest. How about that? 
And I'm going to take some time next week or two weeks from now to help you understand some important things relative to the question of slaves, masters, and women. Meaning, there's a bit of a mentality in our culture that could use this text to really subvert the authority of the scriptures. Ask the question, for instance, is Paul pro-slavery? Is he against women? There's this tone that sometimes you might indirectly pick up from the Bible that that was Paul's position, but it really isn't. And so we need to talk a little bit about some hermeneutics or some how to study the Bible principles, and that will relate to what we'll talk about in two weeks. And I also need two weeks to figure out what I'm going to say on that. (laughs) So today I will confine my thoughts to the subjects of children and men. God gives each of us roles, roles that are unique, roles that are different, and these are expressions of our Jesus-centeredness. And the first one that we see is regards to children. Notice that it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents, it says, because this pleases the Lord. Obey them in everything. There's two key words here. The word please and the word obey. The word please means to make someone or something enjoyable, acceptable, or to make someone happy. When our kids were little, rather than having them them cry for things, we taught them sign language so that they could help at least express their desires in more than just wild cat screams, right? And, And one of the things we also taught them was how to say please and thank you. And the sign language for please is rubbing your heart. Please, please. That's what the word please in the original language in Greek means. It means something that is pleasing to the heart. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that children, by their obedience, make the heart of Jesus very happy. It pleases the heart of their Savior when children are obedient. The next word is the word obey. The word obey is directly tied to both listening and acting. It's really important for you to understand that. That obedience, biblically, requires hearing information and then acting on it. So the Bible is decidedly against a definition of obedience where you would just hear something and then not act on it. From a biblical perspective, obedience requires both hearing and action. That's why sometimes the word, like in Acts chapter 12 and verse 13, is translated as answer. When it says that Rhoda went to the door and answered it, it was it says that she went there and in effect she obeyed. She obeyed the door. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, she heard this sound. And that sound requires or demands action, right? It means that you're going to go and do something. What, what Paul is against is this mentality that children could develop where their parents' words become just background noise. For instance, like the teacher in the Charlie Brown Christmas programs. You know her? For a long time, I couldn't figure out what the deal was with that teacher. How come she couldn't talk very well? And then when I became an adult, I was like, oh, okay, I understand. You know what she sounds like, right? How many of you have felt like that as parents, right? You just feel like like that. You're saying things over and over and over. And and what, what Paul is decidedly against is this mentality that children could develop just simply listening to what other parents say, but kind of rolling their eyes, never intending to do anything with it. You see, what God wants is he wants the instruction of the parents to be like a fire alarm, not like elevator music. You know the difference, don't you? Elevator music is music that's just supposed to be in the background, that you just kind of know that's there. Um, it, not the kind of music you start necessarily singing to, right? If I'm in an elevator and I start hearing, you know, some tune, I'm in the elevator with four people, I'm not going to start, you know, hey, let's sing together, you know, let's, sing, let's sing this song. I'm not going to do that, right? It's, just, it's designed to be music that's just in the background of the room, but an alarm is different. An alarm is designed to call you to action, to, to, to beg you to do something. And so you, you hear something, and therefore you know you need to act. I was at a conference a few months ago. It was part of a panel. And I, in the midst of that panel, when we're trying to answer questions, an alarm kept going off in this hotel that we were in. And it was pretty challenging to continue on with the conference while you've got this loud, blaring alarm. And while the alarm was blaring, then someone would come on this manufactured voice, be calm, don't be alarmed, walk slowly to the exits. You have no idea what to do, right? There's a blaring alarm and there's this, this tone and it's calling you to act. And when it comes to adults and parents, the relationship that's there, the context of children and their response to a mom or dad's instruction ought to be like a fire alarm motivating them to do something. 
I want you to realize, parents, there aren't that many children in this service, but I want you to understand that obedient children communicate something incredibly powerful, especially in a world that's filled with rampant disrespect, blatant disobedience, and rebellious children. When kids get this and families reflect obedience, there is a powerful message that you send to the world. Our kids are far from perfect. They make mistakes, they sin, so do we. But over the years when we have gone to a restaurant and we bow our heads to pray and enjoy our family environment, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say about 40 times we have had people come up to us and say something about our kids, our family. There's something about a family that's having a meal together, that's praying together, enjoying one another's company, and they're not screaming, yelling, and picking at each other that communicates the glory of Christ. And then I'm thinking, I'm so glad that no one's in our car on the way here, right? So (laughs) I'm glad they saw that snapshot and not the other one. Respectful and obedient children are pleasing to the Lord. So parents, I want to encourage you, communicate that your words are important. Be careful, be balanced here. But every once in a while, I wince when I hear parents who don't expect their children to respond the first time when instructions are given. And instead of helping their, chi- their kids understand that my words are important, they simply coddle them by doing things like one, two, three. And you know what you teach your kids? You teach your kids you don't have to obey until the three comes. You know why? Because they know they got like two passes before the third one comes. It's like a friend of mine who raised this dog to only respond accidentally. He knew that the dog, he would get mad at the dog, and the dog wouldn't come until he raised his voice. So let's say the dog's name was Rex. So you'd never say, come here, Rex. No, you have to say, come here, Rex. You know why? Because the dog had learned that unless you scream, he doesn't have to obey. And the tragedy is I know many parents who parent that way. They've, teach, they've, they've taught their kids that they don't have to respond until the third time. One, two, three... So some of you are like, oh no, what do we do? Ah, it's simple. Here's what you do. Just skip to three, right? So your kids are disobeying, and you just go, three, and then go get them, all right? (laughs) They'll learn real quick. So be balanced, be gracious, make your words stick. Make your word your bond, your promises, keep them, and your instruction, help your kids to know they're important. And children, if you're here or listening to this, I want you to understand that your obedience to your mom and dad makes the heart of Christ extremely happy. It makes your parents' heart sing for joy, and it reflects beautifully on the name of Jesus. So we have to labor hard, men and women, for obedient children, not to make much of us, but to make much of Jesus. So how do we take children and honor Christ? We encourage them and instruct them, obey your parents. It's the way that they honor Jesus. The second thing is in regards to men. Verses 19 and 21. Notice it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What the Apostle Paul calls us here, men, too, is a loving gentleness. He calls us to a servant leadership. It's important, men, for you to get those two words close together. Because what I find implicit both in the command about wives and the command about children is that a husband needs to use his God-given role that we'll talk about in a moment with a level of servant leadership. So he needs to have this strong, uh, persevering, even aggressive pursuit of life where he is setting the pace and being the leader, but he does so in a way that he dispenses love and gentleness. So men, you are to use your physical and emotional and mental strength, the strength of the position that God has given you in the created order as a means or a platform upon which you dispense love and graciousness, not a position for you just to now get what you want. What does this mean? Well, it means, first of all, that men, we need to embrace the fact that God has given us a particular role. It's called the head of the home, headship. Now, in order to understand this, you need to look at two texts. So take your Bibles and go over to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. What I need you to understand is this is is not just something that I'm telling you. This is exactly what the Bible says. And we have to figure out what this means. But the fact remains is that God calls men to a specific role in their home. 
That role may have been distorted as you grew up. It may have been horribly abused by your father. Or it may have been completely neglected. But the fact is, is that you can change that in this generation. You can change it right now. And I want to call you to do so. 1 Corinthians 11.3. Look at what it says. I want you to understand, he says, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So what he's saying there is that there's a clear hierarchy. Not of value, but a hierarchy of function. And that is that the head of every man, he says, is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of of Christ is God. So there's a clear hierarchy extending from Christ to husband to wife. Second passage, look at Ephesians 5, verse 23. You'll need to hold open Ephesians 5 because we'll come back to there at least once. Ephesians 5.23 is really a good cross-reference from 1 Corinthians 11 and also one other passage that we'll look at in 1 Peter chapter 3. Ephesians 5, verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, and here's the context, and this is really important, even as Christ is the head of the church, it's his body and is himself its Savior. Let me read it again. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So again, we see not only is there a clear hierarchy in terms of function, but we also see that it's a God-given and Christ-centered role. That a husband is to be the head in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. So what does this mean? Let me try and put some flesh on this. It means that God has given men... A unique, not better, that's important, that God has given men a unique, not better role in providing the pace-setting model for his family. My understanding of headship is, is not that suddenly you have this, this throne from which you can rule and snap your, 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 your scepter and your kids do your bidding. And Some of you may have grown, grown up in a home like that, and you thought, boy, I can't wait till I get married, till I get my little kingdom, right? And then you found out that God gave you a wild wife, right? And, uh, and, and kids that don't listen and the kingdom's falling apart, right? So you're, you're trying to find means to, to break down the insurgency and it becomes war. And that's how you got into counseling. And that's how, why we're here today. So what does headship mean? Headship means you're setting a positive pace, a, a model. It means that a man has been given the primary responsibility for leading a home. Now, hear me. It doesn't mean that he has solo responsibility. And all God's men said, Amen, because we would fall apart without our wives. But it means that a man has been given the call of God to be the initiator at the home. It means that he's the one setting the pace. He's the pace car in front of the pack. He's the lead runner. He's the point guard bringing the ball down. He's the one who's setting the pace and setting up the plays. Use whatever analogy that fits for you. The fact is, men, God calls us to be out front. This also means that the headship of a man should neither be denied or abused. There are some folks who simply would rather cut out 1 Corinthians 11 or Ephesians 5. Some folks who would rather not think that they're either a head as a husband or a wife who can't stand the thought that a man is the head. Denying it would mean, would mean that as a husband you refuse to lead. You deny it. No, I just I won't do that. Or as a wife, you refuse to allow your husband to lead. Denying it would be to somehow incorrectly link headship with value. Maybe you see that passage and immediately you think as a man, oh, now I've got value, I'm the head. Or as a wife, you think, well, what am I? The foot? But determining a husband and wife have differing roles and same value requires that there's a divine economy for leadership and God has instilled that, entrusted that to men. To abuse it would be for a husband to view himself as the king of his castle. Somehow treat his family like loyal subjects. Or worse, like little bandits that need to be curtailed. Further, it should not be confused with superiority. Some people think that to be the head means that they're superior. Or others, because they're not the head, that they're in superior. Or not superior. Or inferior. To be the leader does not mean that you have more value, intellect, or competency. I happen to have the role at College Park as the lead pastor. And I am often reminded in the context of our meetings that I'm not the most intelligent, certainly not the most confident, and hardly the most valuable. 
Just get yourself with a good team and you'll realize that leadership can be one of the most humbling things because you realize that, boy, you really don't know what you're doing. And yet spiritual leadership doesn't assume that you're doing everything or that you've got it all together. But it does assume this, that you are taking the initiative. It assumes that you are taking the lead. So men, let me say it very plainly and rather bluntly. Men, you cannot be passive. Let me say it again. You cannot be passive. You can have a passive personality. No problem there. You could have sort of uh, the kind of person that maybe isn't very outgoing. I'm not talking about personality. I'm talking about the ability and the desire to provide leadership. I know passive men who've been great leaders. I know very assertive men who have been great leaders in the home. It's just a matter of different of style. The question is not whether or not you have the right personality. The question is, do you get what this passage is saying? And are you willing for the sake of your family and the glory of Christ to say, I must Take the initiative. At our marriage retreat a couple weeks ago, a husband asked me a great question. We were talking about the need to plan and to have our families be on target and develop some um, strategic plan, so to speak, for being God's kind of person and partner and parent. And just trying to think through, what are you going to do in 2009? And one of the men came up to me afterwards and said, Mark, I just got to be honest with you, I'm a terrible planner. And my wife is excellent at it. I mean, she's she can plan anything. And he says, and I'm just absolutely terrible, and I don't know what to do. He said, what? how do I lead when my wife is so much better at something than I am? That's a great question. And I said to him, look, I'm not suggesting that you need to be doing all of the planning, especially if your wife is much better at it. In fact, I would tell you, you ought to let her do it. But here's what you should do. You should be the one that sets the date, sets the agenda, and says, hey, on this time, at this particular date, we're going to sit down, and then you're going to plan our life, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you're taking the lead, and then use her gifts. Use them for the glory of God. But you get out front, you set the, and it was like a light bulb went on. And that's, I think, a helpful illustration. You know, you don't need to be the kind of person that you do all the things that your wife is good at. There's some things, men, you could never do. But what you can do, and I believe what you're commanded to do, is you are commanded to be out front. You're commanded to take the lead. Some of you have said, because my wife is smarter than me, because she's a better organizer than I am, because she's frankly more competent in most areas, and she probably would agree with that assessment, the reality is you've taken a back seat. And you need to get out in front and take the lead. And wives, that means that you need to pray that God will put that on your husband's heart. And then when he does just a little bit of leading, we'll sing his praises. Go, honey, lead, baby, go, baby, go. You, 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 you let him know that that's a great job. It's wise leadership. Secondly, a man is commanded here not only to be the head, he's commanded to love his wife. Look what the text says. Husbands, love your wives. Now, verse 19 says that explicitly. There's two other passages that say it equally as clearly. Listen to Ephesians 5 and then begin turning, if you will, to 1 Peter 3. Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. It's a very important passage here. It says, Likewise, husbands... Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. King James used to translate this as dwell with them according to knowledge. I like both. Because the knowledge piece indicates that, men, we got to understand the needs of our wives. You've got to be a student of your wife. It means that you have to live with her in an understanding way, which means you understand what her needs are. You live with her in a compassionate way. And he says this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs, with you of the grace of life. And then it says this unbelievable, and to me, a freak-out statement. You ever read things in the Bible? And you're just like, whoa, here's one. Me underline that and like, whoa, shiver, me timbers. Write that down, because this is like scary. Husbands, if you don't live with your wives in an understanding way, your prayers will be hindered. God does not think well of a man who gets on his knees and says, God, would you help me with this? Would you do this? Would you help me with my business? Help me to close this sale? Be with my kids? Protect them? God is not interested in the needs in your life if you won't address the first need on God's agenda, which is living with your wife in an understanding way. So the reasons why sometimes your prayers go up and you feel like God is distant, 
God pulls his hand and creates distance out of disciplining love to remind you, I've called you to love your wife like I love the church, so get after it and do it. It's a scary verse with huge ramifications. So husbands are called to love their wives like this. They're they're called to love them like Jesus loved the church. So a husband is to know Christ in such a way that he understands the unbelievable love that Jesus has given to the body and therefore, out of his understanding of that love of the church, he's then to love his wife like this. So I want you to understand that there's something deeply spiritual about a man who loves his wife and his family like this. He, he understands his wife, and it's tied to his spiritual life, and it is a stunning thing to me that God calls men to love their wives like Jesus loved the church. So at the heart of this idea of loving one's wife is this deep commitment to servant leadership. A commitment to be like Jesus. And men, that's going to show up in the following ways. First, it means that you're going to be committed to being a spiritually vibrant man. There's no way you're going to be able to do marriage long term. No way you're going to be able to be like Jesus, like he was to the church, if your heart isn't soaring regularly for Christ. You don't have it in you to get along with your wife on your own. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to die to self. You know why? There's too much self in there. You need someone else's help to help crucify the flesh and live through you, and that's Christ. It also means, if you understand this, that there will be a willingness for you to lead your family spiritually. That may take on different shapes and all sorts of different ideas, but it means that you are the one who's setting the pace from a spiritual standpoint. It means that when Sunday, when this Sunday morning came, what was your attitude? Were you helpful? Were you helping the family get out the door? Or did your wife have to drag you here? Were you a help? Were you a hindrance? Were you an assister in terms of helping her and the, the family get here? Or were you one of the greatest hindrances to family worship? See, understanding this means that you're going to be out front. It means that you nourish and cherish your wife. That you you affirm her, you honor her, you protect her. It means that you're the spiritual guardian for your family. That you're the one who's setting the agenda for what comes in your home and what goes out. You're the one who's thinking spiritually about what are we doing and what are we watching and what are we reading and what are we wearing, both for young men and young women. And husbands, I hope you know that it's managed your responsibility. You're the one who should be the guardian for appearance and modesty. It's your responsibility. Because you know how men think. Therefore, you need to set the guardrails and guard the gate. It also means that there's a relentless desire to make the most of our lives, to be stewards of what God has entrusted to us, from a financial standpoint, from a time standpoint. It also means that you are relentless in your desire to resolve conflict. It means that you bear a greater responsibility, an enormous task to be able to say, I want the home that I live in and the environment of our life to be saturated by the reconciliation that fits with Christ and the church. And it also means that you have a passionate desire to know the needs of your family. That you can't just simply close your eyes and be here no evil, see no evil. But rather you got to know what's going on. You gotta know what's going on in the hearts of your kids. Ask questions. Don't be just content to check out and all, my wife's got that base covered. So it means that you are relentless and passionate, that you're moving forward. These are all words and language that reflect a desire for you to get in the game. And this morning I want to call some of you to get off the couch and get in the game. To get off the passive excuses that you have used for years about your father and and what a bad example he was. That, That excuse is over. It's time for you to say, it's time to break that chain, break that cycle and say, this is a new day so my kids won't have the same heritage. I want to call you to be pace setters, not dictators, not authoritarians, loving, beautiful, Jesus-centered, strong men who are not passive, but instead say, I will not waste my life, I will not waste my family, I will protect and guard, I will lead. Our families need us, men. And they also need us to watch our words. Because the text says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. The the word harsh means pointed, sharp, painful, and embittered. If you have another translation like New American Standard or New King James or 
King James, it will say, don't be embittered towards them. The, the, the word means the taste of bitter water. It was like the buttermilk that I put in my dad's glass at Thanksgiving one year, and he thought it was 2% and took two big gulps and then spewed it all over the Thanksgiving meal. It's bitter, get it out, right? That's what these words are. They, they land on the heart and they, they, they begin to saturate the soul such that there's a, there's a bitterness where you just have junk in you that you want to get out. And what he's saying here is that men don't be the kind of people who use those words with your wife. A gentle giant of a man means that you understand that words land differently on the heart of your wife. Woe be to the guy who says to his wife, I don't know what the problem is. I can talk to all my friends like this. You might not be having many friends after your wife kills you for saying things like that. See, words land differently on the hearts of our wives. And then in verse 21, notice that he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I think there's things that a father can do physically. His actions certainly can provoke his kids. But, you know, I think the biggest way that we fail in this area, men, is in the words that we use. Children can become discouraged when a father continually sees all the things they need to improve on. When he, when he sees all of the negative and is constantly telling what they ought to be doing and how it's never enough and you could have done a little bit more, could have hit that pass or why didn't you see that and this, that and this and that and before you know your kids, all they hear is the negative and there are some kids who are longing for a dad to wrap their arms around him and say, I am so proud of you. And you nailed it at that concert. You nailed it on that basketball court. I saw how you gave up your your, your seat in the car for your sister, your, your, your brother, man, you are, you are learning to be selfless. I'm so proud of you. How you took care of, of the family, cleaned the dishes. Kids are longing for the affirmation of their dads. One of my friends says it this way, that the power of no is in a stronger yes. I fear that there's some dads who are so stuck on no, that's been a long time since your kids even know what your yes is about. And how you can test that is when you say yes to something if they're surprised. Yes, he said yes. He said yes. He said we could. Wow. To provoke the discouragement means that you use language and tones that create a disheartened spirit or a crushing blow to the heart of your kids. Man, I want you to understand that direct and pointed and harsh words may get the job done in the marketplace and may move people to action and may be the way that you make your point outside of the home, but they will create rebellion and chaos in your house. You can get what you want. You can make your point with harsh words if that's what you want, but the end product will be a shrinking heart in your children and your wife. They won't talk to you anymore. They'll just manage you. And you'll be the last to know. Therefore, men, I want to call you to a loving and gentle demeanor that begins in the heart and then comes out of your mouth. God, deliver us from angry dads with angry words and harsh tones. Men, I want you to embrace your God-given role. I want you to love your wife and children with great tenderness. I want you to be a, a, a gentle giant. I want you to be meek like Jesus. And I want your words to be so filled with grace that they end up flavoring your entire home. And you know what's so amazing? It is that everything that I've said, Jesus has already modeled. He calls us to be like Himself. Jesus calls us to do what He's done, so not only has He commanded certain things, but He's modeled them, so that therefore everything is connected to Him. Obedience is demonstrated in Christ. Submission, demonstrated in Christ. Power under control, meekness, demonstrated in Jesus. Let me give you an example. Jesus became subservient to the role of the Father, even though He was equally God. Philippians 2. 
He, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery or equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant being born in likeness of men. When you see Christ in glory, you will finally realize what it is that he did when he took on human flesh in order to redeem us. He was humbled. He became subservient. He became low so you could be redeemed. Jesus, the sovereign Savior of the world, was humbled. And therefore, He calls us to do the same. It is that Jesus learned obedience. Hebrews 5.8 Even though He was perfect, He learned obedience through suffering. He experienced hardship and He learned the beauty of obeying the Father's will. There He is in the garden crying out for another cup, another way, sweating drops of blood, and yet has the fortitude and commitment of the glory of the Father to say, not my will, but thine be done. We need some men who make not my will, but thine be done, the new flag that flies at their house. And third, Jesus initiated reconciliation. He pursued you when you were undeserving. He paid the greatest price and He continues to be faithful in spite of our countless failures. Jesus doesn't give up on you. He keeps pursuing. He keeps reconciling. He keeps coming to you. He keeps running to you. And therefore, God calls us as men to see the beauty of what it means for us to be like Christ in our relentless passion to pursue reconciliation, to pursue forgiveness, to pursue righteousness in spite of the countless failures, yes, of even our wife and children, family and friends. Jesus calls us to not give up. So, headship and loving my wife. That's what I'm called to do. I asked my wife's permission to share this next story with you because this week we, we had an argument. <laughs> and it demonstrates the challenge and the burden and the joy of trying to do life in marriage. We're in the process of uh, trying to tile the splashback area in our kitchen. Now, why did some of you already start laughing? I don't understand that. I have in the first service, too. In our kitchen... On the left side, there's a, an electrical outlet, and next to it, there's a little cable TV jack that we don't use, and then there's a phone jack. And it doesn't look real good. They're right there, and they're just not very attractive. And somewhere in our conversation, I thought we had talked that we were going to keep those there, and somewhere in Sarah's mind, you know, we had discussed that those were going to be all covered over. And so as we're discussing... Of course, that's never happened in your house, has it? So somewhere in the course of the conversation, we, we missed that, and so we had this tension point as we began talking about the layout of the tile, and I said, and those things right there, we'll find some covers to go around them, and she said, no, 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 we're gonna, like, those are gonna be all covered over. And I said, you, you can't just cover over a cable TV phone jack. And she said, no, I know, we'll just push it in the wall and, and cover it over. And I was like, no, you, you can't do that. She said, why? I said, because when we go to sell the house, th- th- that's something that people are going to want to know are there. They're going to want to know that there's a, a cable TV jack right there. And let alone that phone line, that we need to keep that phone line because they need phones, like, by the kitchen. And then she said, well, when we toured houses, did, did you notice where all the phone jacks were? And I'm thinking, what are you saying that for, right? <laughs> so I'm like, well... Okay, so so we put them in the wall, and then we go to sell the house. I'm going to have to rewire those and, and figure out where they are again. And then she said, well, how long do you think we're, until we're going to sell this house? And I said, I don't know, like 15 years or, or so. And, and she said, so we're going to live with an ugly kitchen then for 15 years because you don't want to rewire? And I'm like, huh, what in the world? So finally, I just got to the point. <laughs> finally, I just got to the point, and I said, okay, tell you what, just have the tile guy call me. That's it. And I walked out, all right? And I went over to my computer, and I sat down in my little pout spot, and I'm probably acting like I'm working on something really important, you know, sermon or something, you know. So I'm over here working, and she went upstairs to the bedroom to watch TV. Great scenario. So I'm there, and about this time, I'm thinking, I am so right. I am just so right. And I'm, how am I going to win this argument? You know all those thoughts that we have, right? All those wicked thoughts. And then my heart begins to soften, and the Lord starts to work on me. And then I know this. It's my responsibility 
to initiate the reconciliation process. Even though in my wicked, sinful heart, I'm thinking, no, if I do that, I lose. I can't do that. So I got up off the chair, took the first... Did you know those first steps are really hard? First couple steps, I walked up the stairs, you know, every single one. I'm like, Lord, I know I need to do this. Change my heart. I got four steps to go, you know what I mean? It's, you know, and I, I get to the door of the bedroom... I open up the door, you know, look in to be sure it's safe, and I walk in, I see her, she's laying on the bed, just watching TV, and I said, hi, she said, hi, and I said, I'm sorry, and then we both just, and then she said she was sorry, just want for the record, and, um, <laughs> and, and then I looked at her, and we just both started laughing, and I was like, this is so stupid, isn't it? I said, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. She said, I'm sorry too. And so, you know, we made up and everything was all right. And of course, we're doing the tile her way and all that. So, <laughs> Let the record show she's right. Okay, let the record show she's right. But let me tell you something. Climbing up those stairs, every step, hear me, every step was a choice to do what was right, dragging my sinful, wicked, selfish soul along and saying, it's my responsibility. I am the God-given head of this home and I need to act like a servant leader. And when I can't drag my lazy, wicked, sinful flesh to do it, I preach the cross to my sinful heart. And I remind my soul that at the end of the day, I am called to be like Jesus. My kids are, my wife is, but I am too. Called to be like Jesus. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us, Lord. Oh, we need you, especially when it comes to marriage relationships. It is the battleground for self. Oh, we feel it. And then could I just ask you while we're paused here as we end could you just do a quick gut check heart check if I was to ask your wife would she classify you as a gentle giant or would she characterize you as a bit of a dictator or worse would she characterize you as AWOL you are away without leave harsh words is that you do you understand your wife? I want to call you men today to be like Jesus. Preach the cross to your heart. Parents, I want to encourage you. Set the pace for your children. Help them to know that obedience is not just an idea. It's a biblical requirement. And wives, by God's grace, pray for your husband's ability to lead and let God deal with him. Don't nag him. Don't berate him. Pray and then celebrate when God begins to work. So Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to live lives that fit with the gospel. Help us to have homes that fit with the glory of the cross. Oh, how we need you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.